Hi, welcome to Medical Musings with Sam. This is a podcast for anyone whose lives are affected by chronic illness and are looking for hope in what can feel like a really hopeless situation. I'm a blogger, a writer and founder of the online support group Medical Musings with Friends. I'm also the author of My Medical Musings, a story of love, laughter, faith and hope living with a rare disease. Before becoming chronically ill, I was an executive manager with a passion for change management, coaching and developing my team. Medical Musings with Sam is a podcast all about connecting with others who are trying to live well with chronic illness in the midst of difficult challenges and hurdles. Come on a journey with me and together we can share our experiences of living a life of purpose, faith and hope despite our diseases. Hi everyone, welcome back to Medical Musings with Sam. Thank you so much for joining me. I honestly appreciate it so much. I um I have a pretty good idea of what I want to talk about and I do, but there is so much going on at the moment. I kind of don't know quite where to start. Um, but you know what? I'm going to start with some really positive and exciting news. Um, I mean, some might think it's not all that positive, but Given the journey that I have been on over the last 14 years, it is incredibly exciting for me anyway. So, um, and it's certainly interesting. And I'd even go as far as saying it's it's life-changing for me in many regards. So long-time followers of um, my blog and even my podcast know that the diagnosis of a rare bone disease called osteopetrosis has always been bounced around since my femur pathologically broke into in a spectacular way in 2014. And, you know, since then I've had orthopedic specialists um, being the ones that have, have said it's it's most definitely um, osteopetrosis. Obviously they go in, they can see the bone. Plus my bone markers, any moment, blood markers are exactly that in terms of um, well, I've got high bone uh, density and low bone turnover. So, I, again, that's the um, one of the key factors to the disease of osteopetrosis. But more than that, there was things as I looked back in my past and in my childhood that also had symptoms that aligned itself uh, or aligned themselves to that disease as well. So, but the issue was always that, I had it quite severe as an adult and usually the adult version of osteopetrosis is quite mild and 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 often people don't even know that they've had it. Anyway, as I said, my orthopedic specialists, you know, they were confident in the diagnosis. Um, my endocrinologist was not opposed to it, but um, for whatever reasons, never felt she could give it that official diagnosis, but she was really the only one. Um so, you know, so it kind of, but it remained a maybe situation, I guess, maybe probably more in my head than anything else. But it's also interesting as I'm about to talk to you about this and the fact that it is a rare disease. Uh, World Rare Disease Day is on the 29th of February. It's either on the 28th or the 29th of February, depending if it's a, a leap year. And it's a leap year this year, so it's on the 29th of February. So it's quite interesting that the news that I'm about to share with you, given that I'm about to talk to you about a very rare disease, falls so close to World International Rare uh, Disease Day. So I'm really happy to um, 
to promote that and to be a part of that as well from a patient advocacy perspective because this is a really important um, disease in terms of it needs to obviously be picked up very quickly in children but I think there's a gap in where it's not being picked up in adults. So there are three types of osteopetrosis and they're classified by uh, their mode of inheritance in terms of genes. So autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive and an X-linked recessive. So the autosomal dominant form, that's the most common and usually patients have really mild symptoms and they begin in your late childhood to adulthood. Um, and as I said, often probably may not even know that they've got it. The autosomal recessive form, that's also called a malignant infantile um, form or type and that's really apparent soon after birth and it frequently shortens life expectancy. Unfortunately, many babies don't survive at all and those that do die fairly young in, in infancy. Then there's an X-linked form of osteopetrosis, which is extremely rare and only a few cases reported. Um, but there's an intermediate type and that comprises the milder adult form with the um, dominant one with the early and severe presentation. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. I've just recently been put through a whole heap of tests for my spine again. So I've had a bone scan, I've had an MRI, um, my spine's collapsed further, definitely need fusion surgery. There's a whole heap of other stuff going on in relation to investigating lymphoma and um, we've just found a palpable um, lump in my right breast. I'm having a PET scan in a couple of weeks. There's so much going on um, that we can't even contemplate um, the complexities of the fusion surgery and whether we should even consider it anyway um, because of the complexities. But we can't even go down that path for the moment until all this other um, question mark around uh, what's looking like a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, is, is sorted out. So um, I will definitely do a podcast in the coming weeks with an update on all of that. But in the meantime, I'm just going to stick to the spine because um, this is this is what's been really important. So as I said, I received a spinal x-ray report this week, which was taken as part of the MRIs and the bone scans. And I, you know what? I just didn't bother looking at it. And actually neither did my surgeon because um, I guess we were just looking at the MRI and the bone scan and sort of thinking, oh, well, that was showing enough in terms of the, the spinal damage and the progression there that, you know, the x-ray wasn't really going to reveal much more. How wrong were we? I decided on Monday, I suddenly thought, oh, that x-ray report's there and I haven't had a look at it. I probably should go in and have a look. So I did and I got quite a shock. The radiologist was so thorough on the day. Um, she was absolutely lovely. I'd never had someone take so much time over an x-ray um, of my spine. And partly that's because... Um, you know, they always know there's an MRI behind it and, and all sorts of things and, and and there's only so much you can do with x-rays to a degree. And honestly, I've never had a good record even with x-rays. They've always missed things or they've never been reported correctly. You know, it's just always been that kind of thing. Anyway, so this radiologist though was so thorough and I recognised the name of the doctor on the report and I knew that he was um, one of the senior doctors through the x-ray department that I go to. 
So I thought, oh, that's good. But as I said, I didn't think much would come from the humble x-ray. But to my surprise, something new cropped up that has never been reported before. And it was only a little sentence, so I almost missed it. But it said, the pedicles appear slightly short, suggestive of a degree of congenital canal stenosis. Now, what jumped out to me there was obviously the word congenital because that means you've had it since birth. And then the canal stenosis is like, oh my goodness, I've had spinal stenosis since birth and nobody has picked that up before. Um, anyway, so I thought, okay, I have some really credible sites that I go to to look up information in terms of uh medical research so I went to my trusty <laughs> my trusty sites and simply just keyed in those words and the report that came up the very first report without me doing anything other than literally keying in those words was that that was caused by osteopetrosis bingo I just I couldn't believe it my reaction was I just cried and I think it was just absolute relief that finally something concrete in terms of um, a link to, to my childhood because I always felt that there were a number of symptoms that had happened in my childhood. Well, I knew that some of the symptoms that had happened in my childhood were directly related to osteopetrosis. I knew that. I also knew that I couldn't have had a full infantile version, otherwise I wouldn't be here, I'd be dead. But I also knew that the version that I have is much more severe than what a normal adult version would be. So I've always, I've always felt that, I've always known that, but I've never kind of been able to, I guess, have any concrete proof um, Aside from the fact that quite clearly um, I did have a form of osteopetrosis. Anyway, based on blood test results, based on surgeon reports, based on the way my bones break, all of that. But as I said, there was, there was a missing link. And this was it. This is the missing link. And it just made everything make sense. It explained why, as an adult, I'm so disabled with it. But it's also quite a miracle that it took as long as it did to progress to this level. So it would appear that I have the intermediate type, that mixture of the dominant infant form and the milder childhood um, adult version. And it explains the absolute severity of this disease in my adulthood. But you know what? The other thing that hit me, and I think this is why I really cried, is that I have been truly blessed to have lived 48 years before my leg broke and to have had a full and amazing life before this disease decided to cripple me. Because, you know, you look at that infant osteopetrosis aspect in my disease and I could have died either as a baby or in early childhood. It was just incredible the way I've been protected. And then I was reminded, and I really don't have to be reminded because 
it's kind of always there, this haunting, a couple of haunting memories from my childhood. And I call them haunting because they're so real. They're like, they happened yesterday. They just stand out so much. So the first one is that I had to have surgery to have numerous baby teeth removed when I was about seven or eight. I remember being put under anaesthetic for the procedure, but I also remember waking up feeling so distressed and my mouth was bleeding profusely. I remember wanting my dad, who was unfortunately at work, I'm sure that that didn't make my mum feel great because she was the one there with me, but dad was always like the extra caring person when you weren't well and just made you feel like, you know, you were going to survive. Um, so my response made sense. But that memory is just so, so clear. And interestingly, one of the major symptoms of osteopetrosis is that teeth come in later than normal. So there's another diagnostic box ticked. So, um, yeah, your adult teeth just don't, don't erupt. Um, they take quite a while to erupt and, and so often the baby teeth have to be pulled, which is exactly what happened to me. And then the other memory is an even earlier one and perhaps an even more haunting one, to be quite honest. But osteopetrosis in children makes walking painful because of the spinal stenosis. It does it as an adult. It's one of my major issues. I cannot walk anymore. I can't even stand without holding on to something. It's just the pain um, and the instability is just horrific. But so as a child, um, you know, walking as a result of it and the bone pain, among other things, um, particularly for children um, who perhaps, you know, did have just the infantile and, and but made it through to that toddler stage. Oh, my goodness. You know, you can just imagine what the pain must be like for them. But in this particular memory, I remember my mum wanting me to walk a relatively short way just from our home to her friend's house. I actually remember eventually arriving at a friend's house and having coffee. I, that's how much the memory is so real to me. But, you know, I, I remember I couldn't do it. I just couldn't walk. And so she put me in a pram and I was only four. And I know that because um, we, I, I hadn't started school. And we had migrated from the UK to Australia when I was three. And um, I have very little memory as a three-year-old apart from being on uh, the ship that came over. I, I have a few memories on there, um, some really beautiful ones. Um, I remember my dad watching me on a carousel, um, and I, which was on the, on the ship, and it was an Italian ship. And I also remember, um, I, I remember where we ate, and I remember um, the room the the um the, the what do you call it I can't think what you call it anyway where you sleep <laughs> I know they have a special room on a ship a special name for a ship and I can't remember what it is but anyway um so I remember that as well but and they were bunk beds and that's why I kind of remember that but I this particular memory I I know that I was four um because I know that I started school not so long afterwards and we walked or we went past my school, so which was on the street um, that we lived on. So anyway, I was four years old, but I remember feeling so embarrassed that my mum had put me in a pram um, because I remember thinking, I'm too old for this. Um, but I also remember that I had no choice and I was so relieved to be off my legs. Um, and I'm sure that that must have happened more than that time but maybe that was the first time or maybe 
and and that it might have been it might have been that um for whatever reason on that day or on a number of days the nerves might have been being compressed it, it's it's hard to tell isn't it um but obviously there was enough pain for me to be able to tell her that there was something wrong and I I couldn't I couldn't walk so there are a couple of my haunting memories in terms of I'm really glad I have them because I they connect to this diagnosis um, and I think if I didn't have those memories um, there would be more missing links so it's interesting because both my parents are dead now and it would be hard for me to, to ask them about it but I remember having conversations with them about those two episodes so um, they're very real and they're very definite so you know it makes me always ask myself does a diagnosis make a difference I mean I guess over the years I've told myself no not really if you know you know that you're dealing with something whether it's rare or idiopathic or doesn't have a name it doesn't kind of really matter it is what it is and so long as there's tests to prove that it is that there is a condition and there are things that you can do um to either treat it or to know that it's progressive or whatever, then that's okay. But it's interesting, isn't it? As soon as you get a name for something, though, a specific name, rather than it being just rare or idiopathic or unique to you or whatever, it suddenly just feels better. So the diagnosis doesn't change the outcome at all in terms of treatment or cure because there isn't any. But it answers so many questions for me. It's just priceless in that regard. Because everything I've experienced now just makes so much sense. Yes, it's rare. Yes, it's a crazy disease. Yes, it's progressive. And I'm acutely aware of the ramifications of that as my symptoms and my pain levels increase. But I now know why. And for some reason, that knowledge removes its power over me. It's part of me rather than being something attacking me from nowhere. I was born with it. When asked what's wrong with me, I will just simply say, I have a rare bone disease called osteopetrosis. And I can't tell you what a relief that is to be able to do that. So, you know, please remember it is World Rare Disease Day on the 29th of February. Um, you can look that up online and get all the information about it um, because there are so many rare diseases that need to be highlighted. But um, I am really happy to be able to highlight osteopetrosis for this year's World Rare Disease Day um, on February the 29th so um, yeah I hope that that's helped to um, to educate maybe others who are listening to this who perhaps um, have the same disease or are wondering if you have the same disease or perhaps have another rare disease that you're you've lost hope on finding answers on please don't lose hope um, you know 14 years we've been trying to find out um, for sure what's what's been going on with all of this and you know we've got there so it's it's not out of the question at all you know as a patient advocate I am often called inspiring and motivating and um you know all kinds of things <laughs> and um all kinds of beautiful things um but you know there are just some days when I literally 
I'm just treading water. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was lying in an MRI machine for yet, as I said, another scan on my lumbar spine. And I really wondered if it was time to just wave the white flag. Isn't that interesting? Like a week before I was about to get this diagnosis of osteopetrosis. Was it time to surrender? Was it time to just roll with the punches and see where that takes me? They placed me in a, a neutral headrest during the scan because um, even though my neck wasn't being scanned, uh, we had to protect my spine because of the instability of my bones. So I didn't have any headphones or any music. It was just the tap, tap, tap and the whirring of the MRI machine lulling me to sleep and interrupting my scattered thoughts. <laughs> but, you know, what I, I love about the place that I go to for my scans, their care is just exemplary. They wheeled the MRI scanner bed out to my wheelchair so I didn't have to try to hobble in or out of the scanning room um, and I could be transferred directly onto the bed, which was great from the chair and I was just wheeled directly into the MRI machine. They discussed my history with me as usual and the senior radiologist, um, he just held my arm in a comforting way and just looked at me. You know, no words passed between us but what can you say? He kind of got the situation and I could tell that he genuinely cared which was really comforting and really nice. But you can't help but wonder when being scanned if the answers will be helpful or unhelpful. <laughs> And I guess for me, helpful falls into the category of having peace of mind, knowing what's wrong and um, if there's any possible treatment available. The unhelpful is our problems identified, but the cause is unknown and there's no treatment possible. And I guess, you know, over the years, the trouble has been that my medical team haven't been able to compare my case to any other. Um, in their minds, there sort of isn't one like it. And to a large degree, even though we now know the osteopetrosis is that intermediate um, type, it's it's so rare, they still haven't come across it and they still really can't compare it to any of their other cases on, on their books, if you like. Um, and, you know, if I think about that for too long, it can be incredibly scary. <laughs> um, I just don't have good days anymore. I can't get the high level of bone pain under control at all. It's just, um, it's horrific. And I'd be lying if I said anything else. And then there's always twists and turns with everything that we do. So a few days later, I had an appointment with my orthopedic specialist to get the results from the MRI and the bone scan. Um, I'd had the bone scan two days after the MRI. And it was just a huge effort me for me just to get to um, the appointment, to get through all the appointments because they were all so close together. And for the bone scan, we were seven hours at the hospital. It was such a long day. They were supposed to be just looking at my lumbar spine when they did the bone scan, but something on my clavicle caught their attention and the whole process got extended. They asked would I mind lying in the machine for an extra 30 to 40 minutes and I knew I could tell that they were looking at something else because I was thinking, why is this machine whirring around my head? I thought it was actually my head they were looking at. Um, turned out to be the clavicle. Um, yeah, anyway, so I'm lying there thinking, why is this around my head when it's meant to be around my lumbar spine? But anyway, so... Basically, the, um, the MRI confirmed that my lumbar spine is collapsed and uh, basically broken from L3 to S1 and my nerves are now compressed in bundles and that's what's causing um, pretty much paralysis when it comes to walking and standing. Uh, that's the overview layman's description, but that's pretty much where we're at. There's also spinal cysts and other bits and pieces going on. Um, 
as I said, I need, I definitely need fusion surgery to improve any of that. Um, if it does, and that's the problem, there are such high risks involved in terms of infection in my case, but even more, I guess, troublesome is that part of the fusion is highly likely to fail. Um, the risk of that is incredibly high. So it's what do we do? What risks do we take? Um, do we take the risk of me being so paralysed I can never get off the bed, which is a, is also you know, a, a, a reality, not, I'm not being dramatic, it's a reality. Um, or do we take the risk of doing the surgery in the hope that it works and I get some movement? Um, it doesn't mean that I will be out of pain. It doesn't mean that I won't still break. Um, it doesn't mean that nerves might not still get compressed, but what it would mean is that I wouldn't, um, if it was successful, I wouldn't, um, end up being I guess a vegetable in the bed so I don't know you know what, what do you do what do you do <laughs> so at the moment as I said earlier that decision has to be parked anyway um, because the first steps are to deal with a breast lump that I found a week ago in my right breast and the ultrasound that I had yesterday confirmed that it definitely is a palpable uh, mass and I see my doctor next week and we will um, I'll get the full report. I hazard a guess probably they're going to be recommending a biopsy or we um, wait until I have the PET scan and see what comes from that. that. So there's that happening. And then, as I said, I've got the PET CT scan in two weeks' time. Um, my hematologist looking for um, the extent of this lymphoma and um, I guess this collarbone issue as well is all going to be part of that in the investigation too. And and I'm assuming that if there's something with the breast, the PET scan will um, show that up more too. I also have to see my ear, nose and throat specialist as I'm having major issues with my mouth, my sinuses and my parotid glands. Um, my mouth, I cannot even begin to tell you what the pain is like. It burns and it could be a thing called burning mouth syndrome um which is not very nice um it, but it could also be with me um yeah a number of things but um my parotid glands are incredibly swollen that's putting a lot of pressure sort of around my jaw area and my teeth are rubbing on my tongue and um but I'm finding that uh my mouth is my tongue is cutting really easily and um, my my mouth, as I said, is burning a lot. So anyway, so I need to see him, but I also I, there's something wrong with the left side of my sinuses as well. So anyway, that all needs to be assessed. But I, I had the clarity of mind to ring my ENT's office and say, look, I'm having a PET scan um, and my appointment is before the PET scan, would it be better to make an appointment afterwards so that my ENT has that information? And they thought that was an excellent idea. And bless their hearts, they um, have booked me in literally um, two days after the PET scan. So that was so lovely of them because I know that he's really hard to get in to see. So um, I'm being well looked after from that perspective. And then I speak to my hematologist, I think the next day or the day after that. So I'll get the full the full picture on what's going on with all of that as well. Um, so yeah, so lots going on. Uh, and, you know, 
such a long road ahead, I guess, and it could take many twists and turns. But I'm really pleased that we have a rough plan of attack for the next few months on what we're going to do and how we're going to um, approach the situation and then whatever twists and turns are required, I can um, detour along those. <laughs> but, you know, I, I often ask myself am I making the right move when it comes to medical decisions as well because you know there are times in my chronic illness adventure let's call it that when I'm not sure what my next move should be you know symptoms get worse test results reveal disease progression my energy and desire to fight wanes because I'm so exhausted um you know I've got to the point where I can be um just looking at something on my phone and before I know it my phone's dropped out of my hand and I'm in a comatized sleep that I'll wake up from an hour later and feel so disoriented and so distressed because it's just it's not a normal fatigue um so yeah I don't know you know my medical team are are, are concerned but they're cautious um as they should be intervention on anything can make things worse for me and every time I have surgery I'm never quite the same. Uh, surgery depletes me and exhausts me as well and it often fails. But living with a chronic disease is a little like playing a permanent game of chess. You're always working on your next move and wondering if a particular strategy will allow you to arrive at that you know, checkmate that you want. Will it allow you to conquer the unconquerable? You wonder if a new specialist perhaps might have an answer you're seeking. I had eight specialists on my team. I've just reduced it to four and I feel so much better about that. It's just too many. Um, it's a relief to only have a, a core team of four. There are days of contemplating ignoring this disease, pretending it doesn't exist, pushing through anyway. It's an idea but probably not the best and my body would very, very quickly tell me that that wasn't exactly going to work. So, you know, we all know how that would end. Not pretty <laughs> and it's definitely not possible. So my point is that, you know, you, the longer anyone lives with a progressive chronic disease, the shorter the list of options become. We're treading water. We're absolutely treading water. As I said at the beginning, you know, as a patient advocate, I'm often called inspiring, motivating, full of strength despite my adversaries adversities and while I want to be all of those things in order to reach out to others and help them through their own inspiring motivating and incredible chronic illness journeys the truth is most days I am just treading water I feel every inch of my daily pain I look in the mirror and my heart sinks at the reflection of the woman I used to be let alone the woman I'd like to be now when we're treading water we're not drowning, and I think that's a really important point. Quite likely to the outside world, we look like we are managing very well. When treading water, your head is still above the ocean, and while a few waves may threaten to crash over, you are generally afloat. Others would have little idea of the struggle going on underneath the calm blue sea. Your legs, however, are working incredibly hard to keep you afloat, and the more you kick, the more fatigued you become. And to continue in this state will eventually lead to drowning if you don't make changes to your circumstances. You have to find ways to keep afloat. So how can you do that with chronic illness when others are depending on you and when your health circumstances are unlikely to change? 
I honestly think it's about getting back to the basics. It's certainly the starting point for me. And this is what I mean by that. So firstly, just be honest with yourself. It is so important to acknowledge that you're treading water and you know, do that privately or do it with a loved one or a close friend. Talk about how you feel or if you're on your own, journal your feelings with complete and unashamed honesty. This process, it's like a reset button and you'll feel some of the stress just floating away. Your legs won't need to, quick, to kick quite so hard even though you're still treading water. You're releasing some of your um, anxiety and your concerns and it, it, it feels good. The second point I want to make is consider what changes you want and that you can make to allow life to become easier. So that you know, might mean that you decide you need professional help or you may realise you just need a break from working or volunteering or even advocating for a while. You might need to set realistic goals that are right for you at this stage in your life and take time to focus on your needs and not everyone else's. It's a really important point. It's not selfish to step back sometimes and look after your own needs particularly if you are a giver and you um, that's your kind of um, set position of <laughs> wanting to always help others. It's a wonderful trait and thank you for being that kind of person because we all need those people in our lives and, um, you know, I've been that kind of person all my life too but I know that there are times when you have to step back and just say, I've got to take some time for myself because there is nothing more in this tank to give. And then you need to be honest with others. So their response to the changes you are making and your truthful story you are sharing is up to them. It's not your responsibility for how they respond to your choices. They have a choice to embrace your honesty but be mindful that some people will feel threatened by your newfound freedom and may not respond as you would have hoped. Your changed approach to life will be challenging in a world where everyone is quite often eager to put their best foot forward. So just be honest though. Just be honest with others. Tell them that you need time out. Tell them that you're treading water. Tell them that you're in a lot of pain and you just need to just take some time for some self-care. Don't be afraid to do that. So these are the three basic steps to get you from treading water to planting your feet on solid ground. You're going to feel shaky for a little while, but you will hopefully feel more in control of your life. You should feel a sense of peace and relief as a load has begun to be lifted off your shoulders. You really can never underestimate the power of sharing or being honest, of taking positive action if you feel paralysed by your circumstances, but take small steps towards taking charge of how you need to live your life. It's for your well-being and it's really, really needed. Before you know it though, you'll be inspiring and motivating others even if you didn't set out to because you're being authentic and that is inspiring. It's real, it's genuine and people want to see that. They want to see people being real and genuine. So don't be afraid. So do you think we'll ever arrive at Checkmate? I'm not sure that we will. <laughs> I don't think we will. I'm alive. I think more likely it's going to be a stalemate. And 
the attacking and the surrendering is going to go on as the medical roundabout continues as well to be part of my chronic illness life. Look, I don't have all the answers to my crazy health journey or to anyone else's, but I do know that finding a sense of peace is so important and peace isn't a result of good health or money or love. There's a really lovely hymn that sums up what I'm talking about in terms of peace and just a very small verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And for me, my faith does give me an anchor and an assurance that I don't walk this journey of life alone. It helps me to deal with the uncertainties of chronic illness. At the end of the day, I know I don't have to worry too much about my next strategic move because I do believe that my life is in God's hands and I do know that he is always miles ahead of me in planning ways to deal with all of the challenges. Look, I truly hope that you have or that you find ways to experience inner peace in the midst of the turmoil in your life. As it may be our most important plan of attack against chronic illness. Thanks everyone for listening. I will definitely keep you up to date with all that's going on in terms of the tests um, that I'm undertaking over the next few weeks. So I'll be back really soon. But in the meantime, please look after yourselves. I hope something of what I've said today has resonated with you. Please remember uh, World Rare Disease Day, which is on the 29th of February, just around the corner. And um, if you have a rare disease, I'd really love to hear from you too. So don't be afraid to comment um, on the podcast and um, I'd be really happy to, uh, to respond and have a chat with you. So look after yourselves. Lots of love. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you again very, very soon. Take care. If you enjoyed what you heard today, you can subscribe to this podcast or you can leave a review. I would really appreciate your support. If you would like to have more of my medical musings in your world on a regular basis, I also have a blog which you can find at www.mymedmusings.com. I post there at least weekly, so there's lots for you to read and be involved with. If you would really like to be a part of a nurturing community, Medical Musings with Friends is a private support group on Facebook, offering the hand of friendship, support, true care and understanding to anyone living with chronic illness. We would love to welcome you into our community. Just search Medical Musings with Friends on Facebook, click join and you will receive the warmest of welcomes. I also have a book, My Medical Musings, a story of love, laughter, faith and hope, living with a rare disease. It's available now through Amazon and my publisher, Imagine We Publishers. I would love for you to check it out. There's something in the My Medical Musings world for everyone, something different to suit your needs. I hope you do find something that resonates with you and helps you feel you are not alone because you're not. Remember, chronic illness is a part of your life, not all of your life. Take care.